There's this scene in the movie Wall-E. If you haven't seen it, it's a Pixar movie from 2008 where the Earth has become so polluted that the human race has had to move into a spaceship where all of their needs are catered for by robots. The humans are all super overweight and they spend all of their time in chairs staring at screens. In this particular scene, the main character, who's a robot called Wally, accidentally breaks the screen of one of the humans, and she's forced to look at all the things around her, and she's amazed. She's never actually looked around and appreciated all the things around her. She only says one thing. I didn't know we had a pool. And I had an experience like this recently, and uh, it made me think of this clip. I was on holiday and I was sitting in a beanbag in a bar on a beach in Vietnam. There was a full moon just rising up above the horizon and it was like red, really, really red, like sort of London bus YouTube red. The waves were gently breaking on the sand, there was fishing boats on the horizon, it was beautiful, but I was on my phone and I looked around and so was everybody else. There were maybe like 20 people at this bar and every single one of them, one of us, was on our phones. Nobody was actually watching the beautiful natural spectacle unfold in front of us. I wanted to stand up and grab everyone and throw their phones into the sea and shake them and yell, What are we doing? Why are we mindlessly doom-scrolling? Look at the moon! Look at it! I didn't do that. I'm not a crazy person. I'm not making this podcast from a Vietnamese prison. But I do want to find out. Is Wally a prediction of the future, where we're all so distracted and consumed by our devices that we don't actually see anything else? How did we get here? What's next? I'm Tim Lovett, the head of digital learning at UWCSEA Dover Campus, and this year it is my job to figure out what to recommend to principals about our mobile device policy on campus. I'm documenting my journey into the global research and opinions from around our college to try to figure this out. Thanks for joining me. Hello? That is my extremely perceptive daughter. My name is Sophia and I'm three years old. I wanted to see what she had to say about phones because I genuinely think that she has a valuable insight as a little bit of an outsider to the world of digital devices. How often do you think Mama and Dada use their phones? When they do need to use their phones. We, we use them when we need to, okay. And how do you feel when Mama and Dad are using their phones? Sad, because then they didn't get to play with me. Mm. So what would you like us to do with our phones? N- not work on your phones. She also said something that we hear a lot from a lot of people. It's more useful for me and worse for mummy and daddy. So it's okay for you to use the phones, but it's better if mummy and daddy don't use the phones? Yeah. Honestly, I was a bit nervous asking her these questions because I was worried she would say pretty much exactly what she did say. Her mum and dad get distracted by their phones when we should be playing with our girls. This is far from unusual, despite being difficult to hear, and to understand why, it helps to look at the nature of phones and apps, the reasons why they have been designed this way, and how our feeble human willpower is almost helpless against them. Often, we know these things are distracting us, luring us in, keeping us scrolling, but despite this, we keep doing it. But then again, I'm, I'm like mad at myself if I stay too much on my phone, and like, I have the like screen time limit for like one hour, for, but it never works. So much of your day is like 
taken up by just looking at your phone. Like, if you look at your, everyone, if you take, like, a, I don't know, the average UWC teenage daily phone usage, if you look at their, like, screen time, it's going to be probably quite, like, shocking to themselves and, like, other people. There are times when it's really convenient, but it's really easy to just get distracted by it. And then, like, once you're in the mindset of, like, endless scrolling, yeah. you just, like, you just keep going. And, like, you sort of... I don't know. You just become like really like empty. Because while it, you can get very distracted by your phones, it can get in the way of work. It can also like help you. So like on the bus today, I have a Spanish test. So I was using like an app on my phone to study for the Spanish test. So it can also be constructive. But sometimes people just go on their phones when you could be talking to them like in person. But if you're not with them and you want to talk to them, you can talk to them on your phone. Do your family. Yeah. Having phones themselves are like necessary to how we live our lives now, but maybe they're used too much or maybe they're relied upon too much. So why? Well, first think about how computers work. Computers, even super smart language-based AI systems are really, really, really good at processing numbers and statistics. Feelings, communication, tone, sarcasm, humor, and implication are ways that we communicate with each other all the time that computers find it extremely difficult to understand. Have you ever asked ChatGPT to tell you a joke? Awful, and that is a world-class multi-million dollar AI system. So computer systems needed a way to quantify human behavior, to turn the rich tapestry of human life into numbers so it can be processed on increasingly enormous scales. The way that software engineers have done this is simple and elegant on the surface and so complex and opaque underneath that not even the engineers themselves understand it. They turned an emotional response to a video into a number of seconds that you watch it for and a quantity of likes. They turned a human relationship into a series of follows, comments and replies. They turned your feelings about what product you need in your life into five-star reviews and number of clicks on recommendations. They turned an emotional reaction to a message into a countable emoji. All of this information feeds back into the machine, which adjusts its algorithms accordingly and gives you even better product suggestions, video autoplays, and newsfeed items, so you keep giving it more information. Don't take it from me. This is Johan Hari, author of the actually amazing book Stolen Focus, speaking on another podcast, The Doctor's Kitchen. If you open TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, please don't. <laughs> but if you did, do that now. Um those companies begin to make money out of you immediately in two ways. The first way is really obvious. You see advertising. Okay, no one needs me to explain that. The second way is much more important. Everything you ever do on these apps, including your so-called private messages, is scanned and sorted by their artificial intelligence algorithms to figure out who you are and what you like. So it knows these apps, they know, if you've been using these apps for any amount of time, they know tens of thousands of data points about like this about you they know a huge amount about you and they're learning that information for a few reasons one is to sell that information about you to advertisers you are not the customer of any of these apps right they've got customer service departments tiktok has a customer service department you can't phone it i can't phone it because we're not the customer we're the product they sell to the real customer who is the advertiser, right? So obviously they're selling that information about advertisers because if they're marketing nappies, they want to know they're selling to people who've got babies, right? But there's a much more important reason why they're gathering all this information and harvesting all this information about you. They're learning what it is that makes you tick, what you like, what you don't like, 
so that they can keep you scrolling for a very simple reason. Every time you open the app and you begin to scroll, um, they begin to make money. Every time your children open the app and begin to scroll, these apps begin to make money. And every time you close the app, those revenue streams disappear, right? So all of this AI, all of these algorithms, all of this genius in Silicon Valley is geared towards one thing and one thing only, figuring out how do we get you to open the app as often as possible and scroll as long as possible. That's it. They are, they've created machines with the sole purpose of figuring out how to hack and harvest your attention. This idea called surveillance capitalism runs even deeper than this. Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, games, shopping apps, even meditation apps feed into tracking companies which track your behavior across millions of other apps and websites, indefinitely building up this enormous detailed tapestry of your wants, needs, desires, personality, and identity. Have you ever felt like your phone is listening to you and showing you adverts for something that you just talked about? The truth is even creepier. Your phone has built up a profile of you that is so accurate, it can predict what you're going to need, and hence what you're going to talk about, exactly when you talk about it and when you need it. You get that pop-up every time you install a new app. This app would like to track your activity across other companies' apps and websites. What do you click? This is not limited to social media or one type of app. Every app is in some way competing for your attention, because they sell your information to someone else. Here's Dave Caleb, one of our digital literacy coaches who you heard from last episode. Like, is it the social media part? Is it like, are, am I getting dings from like my, what, my mail? Am I getting dings from, or is it really just the social media? Or is it my games as well? Is it a ding from a game? Like I know sometimes games are designed to be... You know, you got to go back every three hours so you get a certain number of gems or those sort of things as well. And if it's that, then that's, that's part of the conversation. The longer you stay on an app, the more information about you it can sell. Subtle things that you might think are actually quite useful make us stay on apps for longer. Infinite scroll, for example, makes you spend at least 50% more time on an app. Pull to refresh does a similar thing. Those little three dots that bounce up and down telling you someone is replying to your message, does that make you wait? There are thousands of these micro-innovations which tweak your experience in order to get you to generate more data. Some websites, for example, delay showing you new likes or comments so you feel more anxious about not getting likes, and this makes you more likely to jump into the app the moment you get a notification. Contrary to popular belief, the human brain cannot multitask. Research has shown that what is actually happening is our brain is switching rapidly from one task to another, and some studies show that this dramatically decreases attainment in schools and universities. One study found that being distracted leads to an IQ drop of 10 points, around double that of smoking weed. Other studies have found that it's hard and stressful forcing your brain to get back on track after a distraction, and it can take up to 23 minutes to get your focus back. Even more startling is that you experience these effects if there's a phone in your line of sight, even if it's switched off, and even if it's not even your phone. So why are we letting ourselves slide down this rabbit hole of distractions? Well, part of it is how cleverly our phones have been designed, and part of it is just the way our brain works. Here's Aidan Carr, our head of psychology. The brain doesn't think very much about anything. It just runs on assumptions, because life's too complicated otherwise. So most of us are running around most of the time not thinking about very much at all. 
we, so we make a lot of poor decisions. So having somebody somewhere think about it carefully and push us towards some better decisions, sometimes as a species we need that because we, we're set to do dumb stuff as a default. And that's me as much as anyone. That's not about intellect or intelligence or anything else. It's just how humans roll. We're not great. <laughs> we can think really well about things when we want to, but most of the time we barely think about anything at all. Okay. So if phones are distracting all of us, there is surely an argument that removing them from a learning environment would be a good thing to do. But what makes phones so special? Other things are distracting. How does this compare to other things? So do we have a policy on Pokemon cards? Do we have a policy on all these other things? And then is it mobile phones? Is it also our watches that are smartwatches? Is it certain types of smartwatches that can get calls and then we get into murky sort of things? Are we overreacting? Is this a canary in the coal mine or is this just like us being crazy old people being like, watch out, she just got to be, there's the kids with their devices. <laughs> you know, we're all old and they shouldn't have these things and there's too much freedom. That's what, it's my old person voice. Are we risking creating digitally illiterate graduates? Here's Angela Newby, the head of digital learning on East Campus. I remember going through social media with them mm -hmm. and YouTube videos and stuff and finding things that made us happy, things that spread kindness and good cheer mm -hmm. and, and them having that understanding, but then inviting them to create their own content. And I remember yeah. us using the school's social media account to share that content out there, yeah. to show this is okay. Social media is not always yeah. evil. Our very youngest learners, right, one of the biggest learning outcomes for a early years child when they leave the infant school, is that they are able to independently select and use the tools and the resources for them to do their job. As in technology, and this is, this is the technology learning mm. outcome, right, for the early learning goal. Mm. So it's like if we are starting them out on that journey and then the minute they get to the next phase, oh, oh but you can't choose to use that, oh, no, you can't use that, that might be the best advice to take a photo of all your work, but actually, can you please use this instead? <laughs> and would a ban be depriving students of genuinely important skills for the modern workplace? It's an interesting argument because that is how you're going to market yourself and your business. It is. It is how you're going to get yourself yeah. out there. Yeah, when they go out into the world of work or even younger, mm -hmm. you know, you've got younger students will dream. They, you know, they, they all will tell you, many of them will say, I want to be a famous YouTuber, I want to mm -hmm. be a gamer. Yep. But... Should we laugh off those dreams? Because mm. these days, that is an actual valid career. I think it's a great compromise when you're in a school yeah. with, where you might have two very polar mm. views. I think I would hope that the people that are very much they should be banned kind of meant. I would hope that that would come somewhere to meeting their expectations. That mm. we hear you and we agree with you on the research. There's no denying that with the research. But we have to be realistic here and we're preparing our students for a real world, so our phones exist all the time. Are these desires and habits we have for tech so strong that a ban wouldn't work anyway? Coming from a strict school, um, a pri my past school was quite strict about mobile phones. Um, what people used to do, because we had rules in place where you weren't allowed to use it during the school day at all, a lot of the students tended to move to, let's say, like, the bathroom to use their phone so you'd have a lot of the students not in like you know public areas to eat they'd just be on their phone in the toilets just using their phone and i would say actually that from a lot of students there's a recognition that that i'm right but no intention to do anything about it 
Um, it's almost like they feel helpless to do anything about it. What can we do to avoid being the people from Wally? Indulge me for a second. Let's do a little experiment. Unless you're driving, take out your phone and open your screen time app. On an iPhone, go to settings, screen time, see all activity, or on Android settings, digital well-being, and tap the chart. What's your screen time? How many times do you pick up your phone? What apps do you get notifications from? Aidan Carr, our head of psychology here on Dover, has done this with his students. Yeah, so I've asked lots of my students. Historically, I started asking them to check their screen time when they were complaining about how tired they were and how hard IB was and how they didn't have enough time. Um, so I started getting them to check how much time a day they spent on YouTube or social media, some you know, uh, combination of, of the above. And I had a running, to- a running mean for that was coming out at about three hours a day. Um, the range around that was quite large and some students were spending six or seven hours a day doing things on their phone. It's a full-time job on top of being a student. Of course you don't have enough time to do work. Of course you're exhausted. But even three hours is a lot. It's a huge amount of time. Um, But the screen time is not a very precise measure because there's too many other things included in that, some of which are productive uses of their phone and some of which are other things like listening to music and other things which I I don't think is harmful in anything like the same way. I don't think it's harmful at all. Uh, So that was quite an imprecise measure and students tended to just laugh about it. Um, I think largely because they could see that actually their screen time was the same as everybody else's, therefore okay, which is a logical fallacy for all those TOK students out there. Just because everyone else is doing something does not necessarily mean it's okay. But more recently I noticed that um, phones now allow you to quantify pickups. So I have a running mean for that as well, uh, which is running somewhere around about 130 pickups a day. And when students started to realize that, some of them were kind of shocked, but again, just kind of laughing about it because everyone was the same. And then a student in my mentor group, very talented, awesome student, quickly did the maths and announced to everyone, but that means you're looking at your phone every five minutes if you assume that you're sleeping for eight hours a day. And that kind of silenced the room. So what can we do as a school to help our students learn these skills? Well, talking and reflecting on things helps. Like, is your phone going off? Is your phone still going off? What's, how, you know, what do you have for your notifications? Well, you have notifications on for every single thing. How can we turn those off? What can we do to help you focus? We did it as part of our lesson with the kids. We did it at year six and we got each yeah. one one by one. I said, like, here's yours, what do you think? And some of them were absolutely horrified. As a school, we're well-placed to facilitate these conversations between young people and a trusted adult. Here's Ali Faro, primary DLC. Because well, they do things like, you know, they log their reading in, like, in grade six for sure to try and build that habit of 20 minutes minimum per day. Da, da, da. So I don't, yeah, I think it'd be great to have some kind of, you know, log of, like, the pickups and I log of the, the use, what's my deal, like, I'm this much on social media, but this much on all the different other things. I like the idea of the check-in with the Mm -hmm. adult and I think at all ages I think that would be a very healthy thing for the Mm. students to be used to doing. And alongside education and scaffolds we can provide opportunities for self-management for students. I really like that idea of 
we offer all these mm-hmm. opportunities. We offer basically you self banning yourself from your phone. Mm-hmm. Like we offer you the opportunity mm-hmm. to put it in a in a bag, yeah. in a locker. We offer you the opportunity to not even bring your phone to school. We mm-hmm. we give you all of these suggestions and we back each of those suggestions up with why this might be useful for you, when this might be useful for you. But at the end of the day it is that student's choice because if a student chooses to do that then you know that 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 we've got that education education piece right and there will be times when the student chooses not to do that because the student trusts themselves to manage themselves so what kind of strategies can we use to manage our attention well there are several you can change your terminology start calling notifications something like interruptions we can engage in time boxing which is when you get the urge to check your phone just wait 10 minutes then check it You can change your notification settings. Over two-thirds of people have never changed their notification settings to reduce or remove them. Be the master of your notifications. You can put your phone in grayscale. This has the remarkable effect of making it much less interesting and stimulating. I tried this and I was amazed by how effective it was. You can set aside times of the day for checking your emails or social media. Plan your day and then don't check them for the rest of the day. There's a protocol you can use called what for, why now, and what else could I do? What am I picking my phone up for? Why am I picking it up now? And what else could I do to alleviate that need? Those are three questions that you could ask yourself every time you pick up your phone. And to remind you to do that, you can put an elastic band on your phone or something that will remind you not to just mindlessly pick it up. Here's Angie Erickson, our high school librarian. Your autonomic response is to pick up your phone where it's not... It's not really a conscious choice. And so, and I see that with students, um, like when they have like, I sent you some images of double screens, like they'll have their laptops open and then they'll just be on their phone for like 20 minutes. And so, and I think that they're fooling themselves and thinking that they actually are studying, but they're not. I know I fool myself sometimes when I think I'm working and I'm really not. But know that even if you're committed and determined to do all of the above, you will still have thousands of engineers, probably just as many behavioural psychologists, and billions of dollars at work behind that screen, screaming out for your attention and demanding that these strategies fail. I think it's important to recognise that they're victims of a vast and sophisticated and billion-dollar rich industry whose intention is to make them look at those phones as much as possible. And uh, it's difficult to resist that. But the consequence is that they don't have enough time to do their work and or sleep properly. What we need is a generation of leaders who will stand up for change to campaign to make surveillance capitalism illegal, revolutionize the business model of tech companies and design better, more humane and more positive digital networks, which act as a force to unite people, nations and cultures for peace and a sustainable future. Luckily, that's exactly what we have at our college. From my conversations with students, staff, the amount of research that I've done here, I think that Not having phones in primary and middle school is the way to support students best at these ages. But in high school, I think we would be doing our students and the world a disservice if we removed phones. They need to see, practice, discuss and learn about the research, strategies and hidden forces at play with this technology while they're with us, before they're left to fend for themselves for the rest of their lives. It seems to me that a phone ban is too short-term an approach for these older students. Learning about the research, actively applying scaffolded strategies, and being supported in their personal reflection and target setting, these are all things that should be at the forefront of our digital education. 
Only by helping them through this in real time can we properly prepare them for the rest of their lives. As long as we can all pay attention long enough to have these conversations and aren't driven crazy by phone withdrawal. Maybe in the library we could create these lock boxes on the table where you could do those like, you know, where you, it's a pre-commitment sort of, because I love those pre-commitment strategies mm. where you put your phone in and you say, I'm going to lock it for an hour. And then it's like, you did it to yourself, man. Like it's on you. And then I don't have to sit and babysit phones. Like I was like, this is brilliant. But then we were reading online. They have those boxes in Australia and kids are like catching them on fire to get it out. And they themselves are the ones who put it in there, like, buying these like mega, um, magnets so they can break the box. <laughs> you've successfully paid attention to this whole episode. Next time, we're looking to the future. How is this all going to evolve in the next 10 years, and what is our responsibility to the world? Thanks for listening. A special thanks to Angela Newby for doing all this work with me. Thanks to my daughter, Sophia, Dave Caleb, Aidan Carr, Angie Erickson, Ali Foro, and the students who lent their voices to this episode. The podcast excerpt with Johan Hari was from The Doctor's Kitchen, and music credits to artists Asher Falero and Track Tribe.